Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu. And I'm Alex Diamond. And we are the hosts of this special series. Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences. This special series centers the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines. Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections. Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia, at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We really look forward to hearing from you. Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And on that note, let's begin. I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Leslie McColeman, a postdoctoral scholar in sociology at The Ohio State University. Leslie researches urban crime and policing in Latin American countries like Argentina, Honduras, and Uruguay, with a specific focus on the impacts of participatory development projects on fear of crime in gang-affected neighborhoods, the factors that shape public evaluations of police use of force, and finally, the ways in which police reform can simultaneously enhance and erode police legitimacy in contexts of extreme socio-spatial inequality. Um, Leslie, aside from your very interesting research, I also want to mention at the top um, that we first met at a sociology of development conference at Notre Dame about a year and a half ago, uh, which was before COVID and arguably less importantly, before ethnographic marginalia. Um, So I'm not gonna let you take credit for COVID, but I did want to acknowledge that you're actually the person who introduced me to Sneha, 
um, the co-founder of this website and, and podcast. Um, so uh, Sneha, unfortunately, couldn't join us today. Um, but I think it's very fitting and appropriate that, that you're here um, and thrilled to have you. Welcome and, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Alex. I remember meeting you and I remember meeting Sneha. Um, I remember thinking you both were great and would enjoy one another. Um, I had no idea at that time or until you reached out about a week ago um, that it was actually that introduction that later became um, what we are all now following, which is ethnographic marginalia. So I'm very, very um, happy to have played a small role in. Uh, in, in, in planting the seed that later went on to Germany. It, it seems like a very different world, doesn't it? When we were actually able to like have dinner and, and uh, meet each other and talk without face masks and without, without you know, seeing the other as, as a contaminating force. We had a conference where we could actually meet people in person. Yes. I don't, I don't know how long I keep hearing people on, you know, news reporters and, and commentators say how long until we can go back to normal. And something about that rings very strange to me, um, because I know, at least personally, it's going to be a long time before it feels, quote unquote, normal again, to be in large groups of people that I don't know in close proximity, um, like we were, you know, about a year and a half ago when we we all gathered together, several thousand of us, for uh, a conference. Yeah, that's that's true, and and I guess I would say that one advantage of this new normal, whatever normal means, is you know now we have the the opportunity, the excuse, and and it's much more normal for us to you know talk now, um, not just record this, but to have a Zoom conversation. So it's actually, in some ways, easier to to reconnect with with conference friends. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've heard that argument made by um, by scholars and colleagues and friends in the global south who um, previous uh, to the sort of digital democratization of, of U.S. conference formats never had the means uh, to travel, to stay at a hotel, to, uh, you know, pay the, the exorbitant fees of, of ASA or LASA or, or the many conferences that, that we all cherish. Um and now can log in on Zoom, you know, side by side with with those of us who have more privileged institutional positions um, and participate in those conversations. And so I think that's a it's a strange um, silver lining that I would like to see continue post COVID. That's a good point. That's it's it's an interesting change that's happening. Um, though I do still miss those those spaces that are much more, you know, familiar and. And um, yeah. Well, anyway, um, Leslie, we usually begin these conversations asking uh, our guests about their histories and how they became sociologists, ethnographers. Um, and in your case, I think the question is particularly interesting because before you entered this this wonderful world of academia, uh, you were actually working in the kinds of uh, international development and civil society organizations that we often study as sociologists. Um, so from uh, a young woman born in Oregon, which is another thing uh, that we share that I, that I think is awesome, uh, 
how how did you how did you end up working in in those kinds of organizations in Latin America? I ended up working in Latin America because uh, by the roll of a dice, as a high school student, um, I went on Rotary Youth Exchange to Argentina, um, and that uh, for me and for for many of the youth exchange students who I knew then and have come to know, um, you know, in the, in the 25 years following, um, it really is, is a pivotal life change. And it, it was like being an ethnographer at age 16. Uh, cause you get on a plane and you get dropped in a small town, medium sized town somewhere in the world. And that somewhere in the world was, you know, a fairly rural agricultural community. Um, in central Argentina for me, but, you know, for my friends, it could have been any country, um, and was, you know, they were scattered around the globe. Um, that was my first ethnography, right. That that's how I ended up. If I have to trace where did ethnography start, it was when I was a youth exchange student, 16 years old, trying to figure out what was going on around me. And it was just just an, saying it was just an accident that you ended up in Argentina. Um, by and large. Yeah. I had no prior connections to Argentina. I didn't really know where it was. Um, I knew they spoke Spanish and between Argentina and Brazil, where they spoke Portuguese, it seemed like a strategic decision, as strategic as any 15 year old is to learn Spanish, not Portuguese. And it was farther away than Mexico. That's well, you had some understanding of where it was at least. Um, So what? So from this from this exchange program, how do you how do you actually end up working in in organizations? And I think it wasn't just Argentina, actually, but all, all throughout Latin America. Yeah, yeah. So that's where um, I need I need to draw the two things together, right? So where did I, you know, that that's that's what made me love ethnography um, was experiencing it uh, as as a young person, as a teenager, um, and then in terms of my actual like professional trajectory, which, which was very much, um, always focused on Latin America. Um, when I was in college, my actual, my first academic love was archeology. span Um, I was an anthropology major and I wanted to, um, yeah, study past civilizations and excavate, uh, you know, on dig sites and, and study material culture and the things that, that, uh, past communities had left behind um, for us to interpret and make sense of and, and disentangle those those social realities that that left no written record. Um, but as I discovered, um, you know, in in parallel with my with my early passion for social justice, there just aren't a lot of archaeologists who work with living people today. Um, they do exist, but they are few and far between. And to continue with archaeology um, would have been an entirely different pathway that that strayed too far from uh, this this you know youthful desire to change the world for the better, um, specifically for the the Latin American communities that that I had come into contact with as as a teenager and gotten to know more and more throughout my college years through through work with social justice organizations and human rights groups. Um, so you know I, I finished college. Um, and at that point, I, I have a degree in hand in anthropology, which archaeology is is one uh, branch of anthropology. But you know, later in the 
in my undergraduate, I started to move toward, more towards cultural anthropology. And um, I set off to, you know, to tackle global injustice in Latin America. Um, and as you can imagine, that's, um, that's a big mandate. And I utterly failed. But <laughs> along the way, um, I found a foothold um, in civil society organizations and specifically working with a development organization in Panama that was sort of at the intersection of um, rural development and education, um, had some experiences in, in Ecuador, um, and eventually ended up coming back around um, to say, no, I think if I'm going to make a difference in the world, I need this thing called a master's degree. Um, and since my previous work had been um, in anthropology, which is very tends to be very localized, very community oriented. Uh, the research that I had done was very much focused in a single place with a single group of people in a, in a, you know, a rural hamlet in the mountains of Ecuador. I thought, no, no, I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm going to, I'm going to learn about the global forces that shape the realities of, um, you know, these, these Latin American communities that, that I've come to know and, and come to care about. So I'm going to study international relations. Because that's that that's where the levels of levers of power are, um, and it's all about you know policymakers and politicians and and global economic elites making decisions that trickle down. Um, so I ended up with a with a with a master's degree in international relations, um, and quickly figured out that the unitary nation state is uh, not a very convincing you know unit of analysis. States aren't these you know, smart unitary actors that that make decisions and follow through with them. There's a lot more going on inside any given state, um, and there's a lot more than the international arena. Specifically, there's a lot of power struggles at the, at the domestic level, right? Um, and that's and that's where I ended up is working. You know, leveraging that that understanding of of locality and place, but also of um, global power relations, I guess, and international development uh, organizations to find a niche for myself in rights-based civil society groups, um, specifically in Argentina, which is where I was living at the time. Um, and the rest is history, I guess. You know, the, the inertia of the late 20s, of your late 20s kicks in and you find a professional niche. I worked with a, with a, a civil rights group that um, worked a lot for was organized around concepts of economic, social, and, and cultural rights. Um, after that, I spent several years at an environmental justice organization that did research on issues of equity and public participation and transparency um, around the, the governance of natural, natural resources, um, mining, environmental contamination, worked with some women's rights groups. Um, yeah, and basically just spent several years, many years, five, six, on the ground being a co-equal participant in um, local civil society organizations who were advocating for change um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, the way you talk about this makes it, it sound like an amazing experience and, and also very fulfilling. So I guess the question is why why make the switch to, to academia? Why um, why study a PhD in sociology? 
Yeah. Um, it, it's, it was very fulfilling in many ways. Um, and there's a reason that I still harbor great love um, and great respect, I think, more than anything for the work that um, professionals and grassroots activists do every single day um, to make the the world that they live in better. And I know that sounds kind of corny, but um, I'm trying to make it sufficiently inclusive to to cover, you know, sort of the the lawyers and the very well educated urban elites um, with whom I worked, um, and the many other types of organizations that um, that just pick at, you know, pick at problems every single tra- every single day, um, and try to incrementally improve things. That's all true. Um, at the same time, actually working in that context can be maddening. Uh, not only uh, because it pays poorly, your work is never done, you sort of never never feel like you've finished anything or accomplished anything, uh, which I later realized when I became a graduate student um, in sociology that, that it wasn't actually that different <laughs> in that regard. Actually, all, um, all, all three of those characteristics seem, <laughs> seem to be shared by being a graduate student. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But you don't know that before going into academia because it seems so uh, it seems so glamorous from the outside, just like when I talk about, um, you know, working in the in the nonprofit sector. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, underneath it all. So, you know, I described how I I went from it was a nonlinear path, shall we say. You know, I, I went from archaeology to cultural anthropology to international relations and peace studies and um there was something inside of me that still had a lot of questions um, about that wanted what I now call um, a stronger analytical and methodological toolkit. I can say those words <laughs> because I'm on the other side, right, of a of a PhD program. Um, but but going into it, I wasn't quite sure what it is that I wanted or at least I couldn't say it in those words. Um, but it was, it was a better understanding, a more systematic understanding of these phenomena that, um, you know, the organizations that I worked with dealt with every single day. You know, we believed in democracy. Um, and that's no small thing in a country that, that experienced, a you know, authoritarian rule one generation back. To say that you believe in democracy and that you want to build, um, you know, better structures of governance and have more, you know, transparency and power sharing and eliminate systemic corruption, um, it is a it's a day to day reality. But those are big ideas, and how do you actually do that? Um, we were trying, but were we really? going about it in the right way? Was this the only path? Um, there was part of me that just needed to, to grapple with, this, with those ideas and to take a step back from um, the trenches, I guess, um, to be able to learn from, um, you know, what, what scholars have been studying and debating for decades, if not longer. 
you know, on these on these big ideas of of democracy and governance and corruption and what is the public good. Um, so that's what that's what the PhD program was for me. It was a chance to engage with that um, that cumulative knowledge base that's been accruing uh, for for decades, um, and to be able to to try to make sense of it and perhaps add some small piece of knowledge um, that advances academia, but that also advances um, what I know to be a very long and very arduous struggle. Now, once once you took that step back, uh, I'm assuming that even, you know, even though you were out of that world, that, that your experiences in the trenches must have been very influential, must have must have been a, a big influence on your research, right? Yeah, yeah. As I'm sure, um, you know, I, so I have a unique path, perhaps, as compared to some academics, but everybody has a unique path. And I think it's, it's worth recognizing that all of us bring uh, to the academic table, if you will, or, you know, to our, all research is personal, right? Is that is that the anecdote? Um, or all research is me search to some degree. Um, we all bring with us the unique insights that that our previous experiences have have afforded us. Um, in my case, I think there's upsides and downsides. Um, I I did I do I guess have some insights um, about how things play out on the ground, and I, I have a good anecdote of this, which I actually feel kind of bad about, but it, it's very telling. So my first year of um, of the PhD program at, at Notre Dame, um, in one of my classes, we read an article about, um, I can't remember the author's name, I probably should know, about um, transnational feminism and local sort of trans, power translations, I believe she called them of Brazilian women's groups um, who were negotiating on the one hand with um, more elite NGOs in the capital city and in turn with these international donors who, you know, under the mandate of UN women and advancing women's rights were, um, were giving them money to um, develop different types of programs in rural Brazil. And she had this amazing, um, you know, very systematic, very ethnographic, um, you know, walking you through what those power negotiations looked like at every instance um, and the agency of different groups, but also the constraints. So like a very, very sociological perspective. And I got to the end and I was like, no shit, everybody knows this. And that's where I think my my personal background or my, my particular path is evident because that's not no shit. And sorry if I, if I shouldn't swear on the podcast, but th- those are my exact thoughts at that moment. Um, we're, we're swear words it is not on ev- this podcast. <laughs> it's not evident if you haven't spent time in those spaces um, and a long enough time to appreciate that civil society is fragmented and that even though international donors wield extraordinary amounts of power, 
by virtue of their position and also the funding um, that they control, that local organizations also have a lot of agency and are very strategic in how they deploy um, their knowledge and their, you know, their their words, their networks, and that moreover, there's a difference between elites stationed in a, in a or living in a capital city and you know organizations that are that are in you know a, a rural or a more peripheral area. So, what for me was common knowledge by virtue of my experience um, is actually a really important sociological insight, and and I think. It was shocking for me to read something like that. And it took a few years of me grappling with the, the body of sociological knowledge to, to reframe what this endeavor was all about, um, which in the case of that particular article that stands out to me um, is about helping shed light and organize and elucidate um, patterns of social interaction that to the participants may or may not be evident, but in laying it out in a more systematic way. But it's not about discovering a grand truth. It's about making it accessible for people inside and outside. Yeah, I think that's... that's, so that's I guess, I don't know if that was a good way or a bad way that my, you know, background has, has impacted me. Um, but I think it's definitely also given me a lot of humility about understanding how complex things are on the ground and not assuming a priori that our academic models accurately reflect um, everything that's happening behind the scenes. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I think that's that's really insightful and and certainly, you know, in my experiences as well, I sometimes feel like, like I write things that would just be obvious to, you know, participants in my research uh, here in this village that I research in, in rural Colombia, that oftentimes it's, it's an act of translation. Um, which I guess in both of our cases may literally be translation from Spanish to English, but also uh, just making accessible things that people on the ground, you know, that, that may just be obvious to them. Oftentimes that's actually very good ethnography. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can move to, to your research um, and specifically your, your dissertation on um, police reform in Buenos Aires. Um, 
So one one thing that I think is really interesting that that jumped out to me from uh, from this project, which is which is wonderfully insightful, um, is that it draws together a lot of different perspectives. So it includes the kind of civil society organizations that, that you've been talking about that you worked for, um, but also politicians, police, activists, state officials, sex workers, youth centers, business owners. Uh, residents of different kinds of neighborhoods. Um, so I guess the first question is, was that, was that like always your plan? How did that come about? Um, were you, did you start with one group in particular and then expand? Uh, I guess, how did, how did your research with, with all these different groups unfold? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I think from the get go, there were two things shaping um, my data collection strategy, you know, my, my, my research plan, if you will, <clears throat> on the ground in Buenos Aires. One of them was um, my desire to keep the police at the center of my analysis. Um, and that might seem obvious when researching police reform um, however, uh, there's actually quite a bit of literature out there about the police, um, that strays. And I'm not saying that that literature is bad. I think it's extremely important to understand the social context in which police operate. I think it's extremely important to understand the judicial system that, that shapes, you know, that, that enables and constrains certain types of police actions. Um, as I came to understand more fully through my research to understand the the political environment in which police operate. But um, for me, something I, I always came back to is I want to make sure that the, the police are at the center. The other thing um, that uh, was present, you know, when I when I hit the ground and, and started running in the field um, and that that I kept throughout was a certain, I never envisioned my research as a, as like a, with a qualitative survey logic, if that makes sense. Um, I never envisioned having a representative sample or a quasi representative sample of X, Y, Z number of, you know, people from different groups. And on the basis of, um, you know, similarities and differences contrasting what those groups think. Um, I do think that that style of research is, is really important and can illuminate a lot of things, um, but that was clearly not what I was doing. Um, instead, what I wanted to do and keeping the police at the center was to was much more Bordusian. Um, it was much more about reconstructing those um, networks of, of sociability and exchange, um, mutual recognition, contention that, um, in which the police operate. So in that sense, um, as I began to get a clearer picture of the types of groups that the police are interacting with, the types of groups that, um, really shape police practices, it started to come into view um, who I needed to be speaking to, 
that I hadn't originally anticipated. And so, you know, there's, you said sort of two examples, one civil society slash activist organizations, because I returned to Argentina where I had lived before, which is not a coincidence um, to do my dissertation research, those organizations were already very much on my radar um, and were much more, were fairly easy to access because I understood sort of who was who and and how to 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 get an inroad to be able to speak with people who were longtime human rights activists and who had been thinking about and working on um, issues of of policing for for many years. Other groups that I did not initially have on my radar, for example, you know, in the chapter you read, there's there's I draw pretty heavily on on conversations with the, the Confederation of Sex Workers of the City of Buenos Aires on um, a focus group that I did with with homeless youth um, near one of the one of the most one of the largest and and most um, violent uh, informal settlements or slums in the city. Those are groups that initially I wouldn't have recognized as key players in this sort of relational milieu with the police. But as I came to understand more how the police operated in the physical space, in the territory, on the ground, not, um, you know, in press releases that were going back and forth about denouncing, you know, denunciations of police violence by human rights organizations, which are part of the story. Um, but that there were other groups that the police were systematically interacting with uh, every day in urban space. And so as I started to to disentangle those relationships, it became, I, I recognized the importance of speaking to people who are members of those groups. I don't know if it's a representative sample. It's probably not. And that's okay. Yeah, I think at least in ethnography, the sort of the attempt to get some kind of representative sample is is counterproductive more than anything else um what it what it is um from what i read is uh a very nuanced account that takes many different perspectives um, into account which i think is a real strength um so just just out of curiosity when when you're meeting you know to do an interview or or to sit in on a meeting or whatever, and you're explaining your research. I can imagine that you use very different uh, words and, and arguments when talking with uh, police, you know, sort of your primary and initial group and um, homeless youth or, or sex workers. Uh, did, did you change sort of the, the way that you presented yourself as a researcher? You know, what's really interesting is um, yes and no. Leaning more heavily towards the no. Um, at the very beginning of my research, and I, you know, had spent time in Argentina before, and I had done some some, some pretty extensive pre-dissertation research, so I wasn't operating in a void. But um, when I first, you know, returned to the field, if you will, to to start in earnest my my you know fairly long stint of 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 on the ground field work, um, it took a couple days to try to synthesize my long, you know, dissertation proposal, long and academic, into a one-page document um, that gave the absolute basics of what I was interested in. Um, And I ran it by a couple colleagues 
um, including academics um, from Argentina who had done work with the police. And there's there's a handful of them, not very many, um, but they are wonderful. I learned so much from them. Um, and I ran it by two of them and said, can I, can I say this? Can I say these things about myself? And, you know, I put my IRB approval number on there and my institutional affiliation, but also my questions about um, what had prompted you know, the police reforms that I was studying and what had been their real effects on the ground and were they legitimate or not? Um, and I came up with a single PDF file, one page that I sent to, I don't know, over the course of that year plus, probably 200 people. <laughs> and I would print it and I would give people a copy, including um, the focus group with, with homeless youth, the minister of security, members of very, very different, um, you know, part political representatives on every imaginable end of uh, the spectrum. And I essentially said the same thing to all of them. And what's really interesting is how they responded to it. <laughs> I can because imagine that it was I very imagine, different. I can imagine they might have responded very differently. What What were the differences? Um. This merits its own paper, which I, I hope I can write someday, um, but I would need to, I'd like to systematically go back through my field notes and um, more, more closely examine that moment of encounter when I was, you know, presenting myself or presenting my research, which sometimes was via email, sometimes it was via telephone, sometimes it was in person, usually it was a combination of all those things. Um, and people were responding. Because I got everything from, oh, you're an American. So you understand that the police in this country have no authority. Because in the United States, people respect the police. Clearly. You don't mess around with them. Because otherwise they'll shoot you. Oh, yeah. I heard that too. Oh, well, you're American. So you can't possibly understand the depth of pain that collectively we still remember from um, the police torturing and disappearing people, including, you know, my uncle, my grandfather, my friends, you know, older brother, um, the police themselves reading my one page memo on why an American, you know, PhD student in sociology would be interested in police reform in Argentina and them saying, this is so important because the politicians are making all these decisions about the police, but nobody's accounting for the things that we know because we do this every day. Just the variety of reactions that I got and people responding saying something about themselves and how they viewed the issues um, in response to this purposely fairly neutral presentation of, of my interest in the topic was, was really fascinating. That is really, really interesting in thinking about, you know, the ethnographer and an interviewer as, you know, your own identity is productive of data in terms of how people are responding to you. Um, so speaking of identity, 
as well as an American, you are a woman. Um, and uh, that's, you know, thinking of entering such masculine spaces like policing. Um, you know, I'm curious how, how you think your gender shaped your fieldwork um, and how your participants related to you. Maybe not, maybe not just policing. I can imagine that it, that it was definitely a factor in, in terms of other groups you interacted with. Yeah. Um, I mean, gender is one of those things that we carry with us, right? It's a, um, it's a master identity. I think, I think scholars of gender call it. Um, that's difficult to, to hide um, upon interaction and comes with all kinds of expectations about who we are, who we aren't, um, and what we're doing in that place. I had the unique experience of not just being female, female and white and 30 something, you know, which are all identity markers that matter. Um, but I was also pregnant <laughs> at the time <laughs> that I was doing um, my fieldwork. Um, so at the beginning, that was not immediately evident. And, and towards the end, it was it was very evident. Um, and obviously, that um, conditioned how uh, how people interacted with me. Um, in the case of the the women that I interacted with, um, I think it was it was a nice entree um, because while not all of them had children, many of them had children. Um, and had been pregnant at some point. And so it was sort of a natural conversation starter. Mm -hmm. um, furthermore, in Argentina, there aren't as many taboos about asking somebody if they're pregnant and how far along they are um, as there are in the U.S., um, which some people might call nosy or obnoxious. I thought it was quite endearing, but people were very forthcoming about like, oh, how, long, how far along are you are? And, you know, what, what are you going to have? And, and when are, is he or she going to be born? And, and that was a really nice um, point of connection particularly with women, including um, many female police officers um, and, of course, you know, many female politicians and activists and, and others with whom I interacted. With the men, and you're right that, that the police is, is a very male-dominated space, um, I think in some ways it was actually a little bit helpful. Um, helpful because I'll never know went through the, what went through their heads, you know, the eternal bind that we face as sociologists. Um, all I know is what they told me and what I was able to intuit from their body language um, and, the, and the between the lines. But my overall sense was that not only because I was female, not only because I was fairly young, a lot of them were, were, were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, um, but because I was pregnant there was something very uh, non-threatening mm -hmm. about me um, that enabled them or encouraged them even to take um, a slightly, I don't know if paternalistic, but sort of a, a fatherly role of like, I'll explain to you what's going mm -hmm. on. I'm going to, you're, you know, the, the novice ethnographer who asks innocent questions. Um, I very much felt that in a lot of the interactions where they would start to explain how things were and, 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 you know, how I should be interpreting things. And then 
sometimes towards the end of the interview, I would sort of double back and ask those hard questions that showed them that I wasn't totally sold on what they had told me. You know, and I had <laughs> this older gentleman say like, Ooh, you're a sharp one. I think, I think we need to continue this conversation. Right. But it's those, those immediate turns in the conversation where, Oh, I, I thought you were just, you know, absorbing wholeheartedly everything I was telling you. And then the pushback shows them that, that maybe not, but that point of entree as a, a very, as being wholly feminine by virtue of being pregnant, um, I think was a very helpful starting point. So they were, so they were condescending, but <laughs> at the same time, it was, it was maybe even an advantage in some ways for your, for the, for the data you were gathering. It sounds like. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't use the word condescending, but because I, I, I tend to be quite I don't know if forgiving is the right word, just trying to understand the viewpoint of the person who I'm engaging with, which is easier in some cases and harder in some cases. But I fully recognize that that some of the police officers I spoke to come from such a different place mm. than I do. And without getting into all the expectations about women, what women should do and shouldn't do and their role... <laughs> In society and in the home, um, which I do not share by and large. Um, but nonetheless, I, I want to acknowledge that they come to the table with that previous experience. Um, and so maybe not condescending, but certainly um, an unequal treatment or uh, viewing me as an other, not as, right. a, not as a peer and certainly not as a threat. That makes a lot of sense. Um... Speaking, speaking of those expectations, uh, it occurs to me that within sociology and within ethnography, there are also, specifically within ethnography, I would say there's also a certain set of expectations um, that, you know, a pregnant ethnographer disrupts to some extent. Um, but actually, you, you also had already had one kid at the time that you began fieldwork, right? Um, so when, when I talk about expectations, yeah. I think, um, you know, we we have sort of this image of the often male ethnographer off on their own or his own, you know, in, a, in an exotic land. You know, some of this comes from the, sort of the history of anthropology and ethnographers going off to, to study, quote unquote, native peoples, right, which is already a, a colonial um, offensive way of looking at it. But there's still sort of a sense of, you know, ethnographers are biographically available. You know, they don't have family ties that keep them from, from getting the native's point of view or, you know, going and living in, in my case, a, a Colombian village, rural village for more than a year. Um, so how did, I guess that's another way that, that gender but shaped your fieldwork. But how did, how do you think your, your fieldwork was affected by being a mom? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, your, I mean, your insights are are right on, and and I've had to grapple with those same things. Um, you know, trained in the grand tradition of anthropology as an undergraduate, it was all about the Malinowski figures, you know, <laughs> and it never, at age, you know, 
8.20 when I was reading that stuff, it never occurred to me that, I don't know, 15 down, years down the line, it was it might not be plausible <laughs> to <laughs> cart my husband and child, later two children, uh, around to exotic locales um, and, you know, functionally exist in the world. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been a journey and, and, and it is, um, I'm glad you raised the point. Um, so I'll harken back a little bit to, to my previous response about being comfortable with yourself in the space. Um, I did have an experience of, of doing ethnographic work in a, in a, similar to where you are now, you know, in a rural locale in Ecuador, as I think I mentioned many, many years ago, where I was biographically available. Um, and it was such a different experience. It was so, um, many people in the community could not understand what a young white woman was doing alone, um, in a village asking a bunch of questions. Um, and so in some ways, having come to occupy that, that social role of I'm a mother, I'm pregnant, um, I have to end this interview because I need to pick my older daughter up from daycare, um, normalized my presence and made me less strange <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that in and of itself um, uh, enables a different type of, of relationship building with, with the people you're interacting with. Um, so you're not seen as quite as much of an alien, <laughs> maybe, um, but more relatable. So that on the upside, I mean, on the downside, if you will, I guess it could be considered a downside. Um, yeah, I just had practical responsibilities to attend to that did not allow me to aggressively pursue certain um, potentially fruitful ethnographic avenues that at a different point in my life um, without kids, I might have. Um, and then maybe that sounds really general, specifically. Um, there are some fabulous ethnographies um, that I can think of. One uh, about policing in Baltimore and one about um, policing in Sao Paulo and Brazil, um, both of which were done by, uh, to my knowledge, single, um, definitely men who were able to spend <clears throat> very, very long um, hours at the police station, um, not only speaking with police officers, but also observing their daily routines. Um, I'm a huge fan of that work. And at a different point in time, um, had my life been different, had my family structure been different, I might have both wanted or, and been able to do that. Um, but that was just not, it was not functional. It's very hard to tell a one and a half year old, no, you know, mommy's going to be gone um, four nights of the week because she's observing the 6 p.m. to midnight shift at the 38th police station. Um, so I didn't take that avenue. Um, and, and I hope other people do, because again, I, I think that work is really valuable. What I gained in return, maybe by force of circumstance, um, was the opportunity to spend, to dedicate those work hours and that time to, a, to observing different things or to speaking with different people. 
So, you know, despite my insistence that I wanted to put the police at the center, um, ironically, by not focusing 100% on police in their native environment, um, I was able to stitch together arguably a better understanding of, of the relational complex surrounding them, by which I mean, you know, what is the influence of human rights organizations? What is the influence of street vendors? What is the influence of, of politicians and judges? Um, other people who, like me, operated to some degree on that nine to five schedule um, that was by and large my, my working hours. Although I did take my my newborn daughter to half a dozen public security forums in different neighborhoods around the city. Um, and I have lots of funny pictures of me with a like three month old strapped to my chest um, taking notes <laughs> of, of residents. Um, complaining about security issues and, and police in their neighborhood. So that was compatible with the small child. That, that sounds amazing. Maybe we can, maybe we can run a picture with this podcast. <laughs> um, so sort of to switch gears, uh, the, the topic you studied, you alluded to other people who studied police, um, but police reform uh, has become really high profile within the U.S., um, politically and also drawing the attention of sociologists. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing you probably get asked all the time um, what lessons your research on Argentina would, would have for the U.S. context. Um, because I, I feel, and I think a lot, of, a lot of sociologists who don't study the U.S. sort of feel like a, a pressure to justify their work in terms of... Um, in terms of the U.S. context, and you can say whether you agree with that or not. Um, but I guess my my question is whether whether you feel like that uh, that fact that relationship to the U.S. affects your work at all. Um, like, do you feel that pressure to relate Argentina to the U.S.? Um, do you think it helps you as like making an argument for why your research matters, uh, or or is it a source of frustration even? Um, well, you asked so many good questions all in a row. I'm not sure where to start. Um, I'll start with the easy one, which is, is it a source of frustration? No, it's not. Because um, after the eruption of large and sustained social protests um, in the summer of 2020 over issues of of racial inequality and, and police abuse um, for the first time since I pitched not only my dissertation, but my acceptance into a program, a PhD program in sociology, and pitched something loosely re related to policing and, and, and touching on the issue of police reform. For the first time last summer, as I was literally writing my dissertation, did I feel like the United States at large was starting to grapple with um, the problems that manifested in different ways um, are very much on the radar of 
a lot of the global South. Um, you know, so said differently, having spent a lot of time in Latin America, particularly in Argentina, um, was what got me interested in policing because there's this deep contradiction in police work that on the one hand needs to provide safety for people and people, particularly the urban poor, absolutely demand the police because they are afraid um, and, and rightfully so of, of criminal victimization. Um, and at the same time, the police are a force of violence that provokes fear um, among many people in those communities. And so that contradictory face of policing and the next logical step, which is how do we, what can we change about this institution to um, better fulfill that, what I, what I have heard by my informants called a, a sacred mandate. Um, These are the, that, the that police central who, who to, said that to, or citizens? No. No, it was actually a representative of the ombudsman's office who called it the sacred mandate. And according to her, um, police officers are not sufficiently attuned to that sacred mandate. And that's that's part of the reason that they abuse their power. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this so the, the, the weird um, contradictory character of policing and how vulnerable it is to abuse um, is something that's very evident in many parts of the developing world, particularly in urban areas, um, and to which I had become sensitized by virtue of living there um, and interacting with, with marginalized communities. But that wasn't necessarily on the radar of the public at large in the United States, which is not to say that it wasn't on the radar of many of the communities which have themselves experienced um, police violence or mass incarceration, but it wasn't on the public agenda. And so for the first time after the uphill battle of feeling like I was, I was rowing a canoe upstream for my entire graduate you know, career of trying to make a case for why we should be studying police reform, um, as I'm writing my dissertation, the light went on and many people for the first time said, oh, police reform matters. Um, from there to whether or not what I, what I saw, what I, what I studied in the analysis that, that I developed of, of police reform in Argentina offers um, takeaways <clears throat> for police reform in the United States. Um, I mean, yes and no, no, what, what a cheat answer. I feel like I'm saying yes and no to everything, but that's the nuances of academia, right? Um, no, because there are local complexities, like the, the issue of race and racism in the United States is clearly at the top of the agenda. Um, and at least in Argentina, where there, there are racial differences, there is racism, but that's not the key organizing force. So the, the social cleavages are, are more tightly coupled to class than they are to race, per se. 
um, that's that's a key difference. And then in terms of governance, the police here are much more decentralized, um, which means that institutionally, um, those reform processes, the successful or unsuccessful, will by definition be different than in a place where policing is far more centralized, like Argentina or you know, it's a, it's a French model, which is also largely centralized. Argentina isn't totally unique, but the United States is, is different in that regard. That said, I think there are a lot of similarities. Um, and the, the work that I'm doing right now is to, you know, in the, in the post-dissertation phase to, to step back from, to continue to make sense of a slightly overwhelming mass of data <laughs> that I, I attempted to carve and sculpt into a an intelligible story um, in, in the form of the dissertation. I need to keep doing that work to really pull out the key threads and, and to make that story even clearer, both to myself and to potential readers. And I think only there um, will it be possible to, to really say this, this is what we should keep in mind as we move forward with police reform in the United States. Um, but right now my, my inclination is, would be to say, to be very cognizant of class-based differences, um, in expectations of what the police should do. And particularly around the issue of, of what criminal criminologists refer to as urban disorder, which isn't necessarily crime. So it's not, theft or robbery or larceny. It's it's about loitering. It's about drunkenness. It's about littering, graffiti, urinating in public space. Um, what criminologists refer to as disorder is a lot of what the police do um, is dealing with complaints about disorder. And sometimes those complaints escalate um, or sometimes those encounters, those police citizen encounters escalate. Um, and end up with with very negative consequences. But what I was able to see in Argentina, um, where you know changing police practices was very much on the table, was um, the difference in expectations between different social classes about what public space should look like and what should be allowed. Really laid bare, where you know to to discuss the two extremes, and obviously a lot of people are in the middle, but in some of the extraordinarily wealthy neighborhoods, which have very low rates of crime, um, there was a huge outcry that the ability of the police to shuffle away homeless people, to arrest people who were, who were informally selling on the street, to, um, you know, to take in um, prostitutes or sex workers, um, or arrest them on, on some sort of charge, limiting the police's ability to, um, put, to provide order in what they view as their safe space was very much resented. Um, whereas on the other hand, um, the people who rely on that space, the sex workers, the, um, you know, informal vendors, uh, the, the very large homeless population, um, decoupling their daily subsistence activities with crime, 
and saying, no, the, the police need to focus on crime. What we're doing is subsisting was in very much was was in many ways um, liberating. It was like, you know, removing a, a very scary, um, an, an ominous and ever present threat that that had been over their heads previously. Um, the police were in the middle of this, but this ended up being a, a very um, a very contentious debate that that played out largely along class lines. So I would, I think that that takeaway is also relevant in the United States, given the extraordinary um, residential segregation that we have. Um, yeah. No, it sounds it sounds very relevant, um, and it's it's an important insight. I'm sure it applies to a lot of countries. In fact, um, so let me finish with an unfair question, uh, because uh, I know that you're still working on, you know, writing up this fascinating research on police reform that you've shared with us. Um, but just sort of as a a last question, what's next? Uh, do you have any ideas for uh, your your future research project? Yeah, so I'm, um, I never have a shortage of ideas, but um, it's all about pinning them down and figuring out which one has legs, right? Um, right now, I'm really excited um, to be starting a collaboration that, that looks like it will ramp up with um, an organization that's called Everyday Peace Indicators. Um, EPI, which you may or may not have heard of, Alex, because it um, they have they are doing a lot of work in Colombia. Um, but the so this organization has a has a very which is full of a bunch of um, sociologists and political scientists who, um, like us, are attuned to the to the importance of of qualitative data gathering on the ground, um, but also want to be able to speak to um, you know, policymakers and and um, people who are thinking in more quantitative terms um, have developed this really awesome uh, methodology for measuring peace. Kind of the opposite of what I've been doing, which is focusing on measuring violence and measuring conflict. Um, their focus is on is on measuring peace and doing so in a way that is um, context specific. Um, and very much responsive to the lived realities on the ground for for different communities in in countries that have been affected by by large scale violent conflict, like Colombia and um, like Sri Lanka. Um, so, I am excited to be coming on with them uh, as a sort of a research associate um, and helping with the analysis of some of the the data that they've been collecting for several years. Um, about local understandings of peace. What are those indicators? How do they change over time? How do they change in response to um, interventions? Um, interventions in the sense of, you know, global development programs, in this case, USAID funded, um, aimed at reconciliation and economic development, which are very, very complex social processes. <laughs> um, and to see whether, how, and to what extent um, those types of top-down programs actually do shift the needle um, for the, the level of peace and the level of reconciliation experienced by, by these communities that 
you know, after um, episodes of, of sustained large scale violent conflict are, are for the first time starting to think about, you know, peace as an actual horizon and peace is very messy. Um, so that's, that's the thing I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, to pick away at and getting excited about working on now. Um, and then in the future, I want to pull it back to, to police reform in the U S um, you know, there's a project that, that I've had on the back burn on the back burner. It's not even, it's, it's marinating still. Um, and eventually I'll put it on the burner, but ironically, I've spent my entire adult life studying Latin America. I've never done systematic research on the United States. However, the majority of literature of academic literature, sociological, criminological, um, and, and otherwise about policing and police reform was actually produced in the United States. And as you said, <laughs> tends to be fairly U.S. centric. Um, you know, what you said in general definitely applies um, to literature on policing, um, which is neither bad nor good. But what it means is that in reviewing prior research on what has been said, what hasn't been said, and, and how have scholars gone about understanding this, this process that we call police reform, I read a lot about the United States, um, more so than, than I had ever expected to. And what I discovered <laughs> is that you don't have to go that far back in time to find the same patterns of um, political manipulation, widespread, widespread corruption, and very limited accountability about police use of force um, that are still commonplace, unfortunately, in, in much of Latin America, but were in fact commonplace in the United States as well. Um, as recently as the 1940s and the 1950s. Um, that has changed, which is not to say that, that the issue of policing is, is solved, because it's clearly not. Um, but there are some things that have changed in the United States very dramatically since 80 years ago. Um, and it makes me very, very curious about how that change really occurred. Um, how was it that police forces became disentangled from the local um, political machine? Um, I don't know. I haven't found a lot written about that particular process. Um, and so once, once this project draws to a close, I think my next big personal research project is probably going to be that. Much more historical and much more domestic than I ever expected. That's well, a fascinating question. Um, same with the Everyday Peace Indicators Project, uh, which also seems like maybe moving back into a little bit the sort of wearing the walking in the shoes of a practitioner, at least directing research toward toward practical ends, which I think is important. Um, so, Leslie, uh, this was this was a fascinating conversation. Um, I look forward to, to reading as, as you start publishing uh, more about your, your work on police reform and, and all these other amazing projects. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to speak with us here on, on Ethnographic Marginalia. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for your awesome questions. And thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. Um, 
and hope everyone is staying safe, you, you and your family included, Leslie. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.